psychiatrists rapping about our lives and work. This podcast is not intended to be medical advice. Any stories we use have been altered to protect identities and sensitive information. This is intended for entertainment purposes only. You know it! Ow! Welcome to the Good Shrinks Podcast. Hey, T. Hey, C. How Hi. you doing today? I'm doing pretty well. How about you? Well, it's been pretty good. Actually, I've been off for a lot of these days this week, but I go back on Thursday. Okay. What about you? What's your week been like? Um, well, I'm going on a two-week trip coming up, so Ooh. I've been working like every day for the past two weeks, so my fuse <laughs> Saving those coins. has been short. <laughs> <laughs> I'm telling you, sometimes at ER, it's really hard. Mm. It's really hard. Not just the work that we do, but the environment that we work in. I have worked there for over 20 years, and I swear they have never got the temperature right in that building. It is always cold. I mean, are we refrigerating things in there? Like us? Why is it so cold? They're trying to preserve you, too. They know they need you. (laughs) Everybody complains, and they always do things to try to figure out what to do and, you know, tamper with this, tamper with that, but nothing works. Nothing Mm -hmm. sticks. You know, it's tiny little grievances about our job, right? I had kind of something similar this week where we have one of our six computers where the shift button (laughs) does not work. So K shift. No. So I, I think this pertains maybe to most jobs, but you know, you have to put your password in about five thousand times yes. before you can access anything. Before you can do anything. I'm literally <laughs> at this computer, keep getting locked out of it. Is it always that one is available when you come on shift? Like everybody steers clears that one because Yeah, you know, if you're like the last one in, in office. <laughs> you get the you get the bum. You get the bum computer. And so I was working an overnight actually one week and I was like, you know, let me see if I can fix this thing. So I called <laughs> IT. I was like, look, I, need, I just need a new keyboard. That's all. <laughs> and they like, okay, we'll bring you a new keyboard. They put in a work order. Right. They claimed that they approved and fixed the keyboard. <laughs> I, go, I come back. It's the same <laughs> keyboard. Same lousy keyboard. I'm like, what is going on? You can't even afford one keyboard. <laughs> what like, is going on? This is the state of healthcare, guys. Yeah, yeah. It's rough out there. (laughs) I mean, it's very true, though. Like, that's one thing I'll say about our EMR and just in general is the more advanced that IT gets, the more passwords and safe locks they Mm -hmm. have, the harder it is for us to work. To just put in a note. Yeah. You have to be in the right context. If you're not in the right context, like, you didn't, everything you just did didn't apply. It is so frustrating. I'm surprised that there aren't more mistakes made. Yeah. Because of all these different things that well, they're doing. Well, I think a good way to think of it is it's almost like death by a thousand cuts. <laughs> like, yeah. you know, we're going in, we're seeing very intense situations, we have other things distracting us. Then, just to put in information about the patient, you're having to put a password in 75 times. Mm-hmm. You're internally getting, like, so frustrated mm-hmm. over little things. And it's like, is there anyone out there that is <laughs> kind of trying to streamline this for yeah. us? It feels like you're on your own. Yeah, and it really does. Hunting and pecking. And then, you know, fortunately, we work at a place with a lot of smart people. Yes. Our colleagues are very good about sharing information, what they've learned, and little tricks and stuff. But why why does it come to that? Yeah. Like, why does it have to be we are a detective while we're trying to see these people? Yeah. I mean, we try to figure things out all the time. It's true. And, it's, and you just kind of assume, like... 
you know, I maybe all jobs are like this. You assume someone higher up is observing and looking over this kind of stuff, and then you kind of realize like maybe there's not because why isn't this being streamlined? And, and all of these things take time. Yes. So it takes time to see the person, takes time to write the note, takes time to figure out how to put the note in the chart. Mm. Then you get distracted. The nurses are, you know, asking questions and people are in crisis and you've got to stop what you're doing and then hopefully remember where you were when you come back to your note or your orders or whatever you're trying to do. It's it's chaotic. Yeah, it's a lot. Um, and it's like I don't want to sound like being entitled like oh I, I need a new keyboard but it's like it's just a keyboard you know that's all I ask for it's, a it's a basic of our job duties we have to be able to you know, put this stuff in yeah just let us live please I mean stuff is hard enough as it is just right. make, make the simple stuff simple please so you know kind of speaking about this work trauma mm-hmm. I think like a good topic today might be just talking about PTSD yeah. trauma related things and let's do know, it yeah, and kind of things that maybe you've seen or I've seen. and um... Well, I feel like it's one of the most often reasons that people come to the emergency room. Um, family members might be concerned because people's behavior has changed. Plus, with COVID, you know, the whole, the whole trauma of that, I think, really affected a lot of people, brought things up yes. for people. So, you know, trauma is it's different for everybody. I know that. One of the ways that I explain to people kind of what PTSD and how it works is like when you have a traumatic event, it's like part of your brain freezes. Mm -hmm. And then over time, it can defrost, but it's at different rates for different people. So as your brain starts to, to defrost, you know, it sort of freezes to protect you at the time of what you're experiencing is so horrible, you can't really deal with it. So it sort of freezes it. But as it defrosts, you may get remembrances or reoccurrences of that trauma, and we call those flashbacks. Sometimes you might have nightmares. Sometimes you might feel like you're just on edge all the time, or you have this kind of hyperarousal sense. Sometimes you might feel sort of a negative cloud, like just sort of a general feeling of depression, like things are never going to get better, things are never going to be okay, waiting for the other shoe to drop. Some people get dissociative symptoms where you actually feel detached from things around you. Things don't feel real or you don't feel real. So when people have those kind of symptoms, you can see how they would disrupt, you know, their life, their relationships, how they work. Um, So that's usually how people come end up seeing us because things are pretty disrupted. Um, You kind of mentioned like having hyperarousal states, right? I, mean, I remember having a at sixteen a car accident where I skidded across the road. A, a minivan hit clipped the backside of my car. I spun and ran into some trees. I mean, the whole side of my car was ruined. So scary. And after the car stopped, I just stared off for at least a good two minutes. Like, did not move from the steering wheel because I was like, I, I didn't believe it happened. Like, I really did dissociate and was just like. This is this did not, and I, and I remember thinking in my mind like my car is fine. I'm not right here. This did not just happen. Like, but you're in such a daze, and I remember that feeling. And it, and I think in some sense individuals that have trauma like they feel that feeling more often, right? They dissociate and it comes back. I'm triggered right now. Yeah. From your perspective of kind of the place that we work, because we often do like initial evaluations. Mm-hmm. Do you think that patients in general, when they talk to you, do you think they hold back on their trauma because we don't necessarily always have 
a long-term relationship with them? That's interesting. You know, I think that it varies. I think there certainly are people that are very guarded and maybe not even in touch with, you know, what happened to them. Sometimes it's a surprise. Like, you know, it's a question that I sort of routinely ask, but they're not asked about that in their real life, you know, out there. Nobody's asking them about their trauma. So they all sometimes are surprised that we even bring it up and are grateful and want to get it off their chest and talk about it. Other people, it's like they come in a dissociated state. So they're not really able to to really talk about what is going on with them. And you can just gather collateral history or, you know, especially if the trauma is fresh, Mm -hmm. something that just happened. Yeah, definitely there are people that don't want to talk about it or they say, you know what, I'm not going into that because every time I talk about it, it brings it up and makes it worse. So Yeah, sometimes patients or individuals that we see, they may be in therapy and talking about their trauma and it can really like exacerbate their mm-hmm. symptoms within their normal lives, you know. And they may be at school and have some thoughts of harm to themselves or other situations. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, right, bullying, bullying, which can be a part of trauma. Mm-hmm. I think that is a lot of the kids that we see. So not only these kids are having trauma at home with whatever is going on at home, then they go to school and it's, you know, sort of compounded. So definitely causes a lot of distress and disruption in people's lives. I feel like there's, you know, there's different categories. It's it's any life-threatening situation, but certainly we see our fair share of uh, veterans. We see survivors of sexual trauma. Um, and, you know, my experiences with the latter, I think a lot of women come in from domestic violence situations or they've been raped or sex trafficked. Unfortunately, where we live is it's pretty rampant, the, the trafficking. And so um, fortunately, there are agencies that help us, you know, give services to those people. Yeah. And there's kind of many different types of trauma, right? There's mm-hmm. uh, Like war. Yeah, war-based, like combat-based trauma. You know, part of my training was at one of the VAs and, you know, I would sit in on a lot of groups with veterans and you could tell they could really relate to something that you don't know about, you mm-hmm. know? And, Kind of like similar, let's say, someone going through medical training. It's almost you feel like you're in the trenches with your other medical students and residents because something that other people can't really know unless they experience. It's kind of Mm -hmm. a similar vibe to that. Kind of another form of trauma that I really kind of observe with the veterans and you touched on earlier is um, just the intrusive memories. The flashbacks can get so intense, they almost appear like hallucinations. A lot of veterans tell me that they would hear mantras that they learned in the military when they blacked out, and that's the only thing that they would hear, um, you know, indirectly assaulting their partner in their sleep because they think they're still in combat. Because I think combat has such a, obviously has such a profound effect on the person. It's interesting kind of seeing it kind of after the fact because, you know, we really kind of glorify like, yeah, go to the military, help our country, which is awesome it's true it's very very noble the thing is if you end up in combat you know there's a side that's not so pretty afterwards and i think a lot a lot of times an 18 to 20 year old goes in the military and doesn't quite realize how profound those those effects will be i think it's important to just count the cost and i don't know that there's a lot of discussion about counting the cost before people get into the military. People go into the military for so many different reasons. Sometimes it's to get a new place to go. Sometimes it's to get structure and get the routine of your life 
together. Sometimes it's for a career in the military. Sometimes it's because you want to learn how to fly and be a you know, it could be any myriad number of reasons, but you got to count the cost before you really endeavor to do anything, but especially something that could be so impactful to your life as combat and in those experiences. And nobody can really tell you until you get there, but you should at least imagine how your life could change if you were in that situation. And I think that applies probably to many other careers too, you know, yes. like law enforcement work, fire department, even like EMT, just there's many things that you're going to experience, you know, some form of trauma and it is a cost risk benefit. And for many, the, the benefit greatly outweighs the cost. I think that's why the VA has, I think 30% of the, the VA funds are aligned towards mental health and probably for that for that reason. It's my hope that the veterans that do need that help get it. There's still so much stigma with mental health. It's important that people know that help is out there, that they're not alone, that they can be supported. Just to take that step, take that little risk to reach out and get help. And you know, something else I, I kind of noticed working at the VA is there's some individuals that really need that structure and so that, that's kind of why they go into the military, right? It's mm-hmm. hard for them to maintain that on their own. And the military provides that externally. Mm-hmm. They can really struggle. And so then you kind of see that in the after effect. It's like, well, they really needed that military, in a sense, to sort of stay on the straight and narrow, which is interesting to kind of, again, just kind of a personal perspective to kind of see that from the other side. It's you know? a good point. <clears throat> I feel like, too, I mean, <clears throat> structure in general is necessary for people to, I think, grow and develop and become responsible humans, adult humans. There are so many cases that we see of people that come in because they do not have structure in their life. You know, if they had a day program, some kind of job, something where they were doing a routine every day, they would be out of the emergency room. They would be back to their life. But they use us, I think, a lot of times for, like, we're part of their structure, Mm -hmm. that they have to come and check into the emergency room just to touch base with us, which is not a a healthy (laughs) coping skill, but um, but we're definitely used that way. Or monetarily sound. (laughs) (laughs) Right. You get charged for those things. Yeah. You know, from your perspective, T, I mean... What do you think is harder for you personally seeing? Is it child trauma, adult trauma? Um, is it all tough? It's for- all tough, but certainly for the, with the kids. Yeah. Because a lot of times they have to go back to the trauma, the access to trauma that they came from. I wish that we had better DSS-like services you know, available. They're overwhelmed. They have so many cases. So sometimes I, I worry that they're not going to get the wraparound investigation and things like that, that they need to ensure that they're safe. So sometimes we keep kids just for that because they don't have a safe disposition. Mm-hmm. Um, so those, those cases are definitely tough. Yeah. I think those are the ones that we really struggle with sometimes figuring out what to do next. It's interesting. Uh, you know, back in my training, one of the top child psychiatrists that I worked with, I was very fortunate to work with her. She really said, a parent really needs to be present and engaged 
like about 30% of the time. If you can do that 30% of the time, there's a very high likelihood that your, your child will be well adjusted and can kind of you know move on through their life. Um, and I think a lot of times with trauma, we always think of like sexual trauma, physical trauma, but I mean, really the, the biggest trauma kids experience is neglect, mm. you know, it comes down to emotional trauma. We kind of see that I think a lot in our setting. Parents are overworked, they're really strapped for time, the child is kind of left to their own devices, right? They increase their level of defiance, they have some internal anger towards their parents that is expressed that way externally. They don't listen to punishments because they really do have a lot of anger and, and resentment towards a parent that's when they end up coming to us. And then that's really kind of what makes child psych, I think, difficult is navigating the family systems because, I mean, a lot of studies show if you can increase the attachment level of the parent, it actually is what has the most profound impact on child development. And so I think that's kind of the hard part of it. You're working with the whole family system. Uh, I don't know about you, but I have a lot of family and friends who are like, oh, child psych, like, you should do more of it. There's such a demand. It's great, but you are emotionally drained after three, four hours of consistent family-focused therapy in the room, you know? <laughs> right, and, and we're not set up for that. We yeah. don't have therapists, you know, in the emergency room. So any case that, you know, demands for you to really dig in and figure out what's going on, it's going to be a long time. Mm-hmm. And something else I think I, I've noticed child cases is, kind of labeling sometimes kids that are more difficult get labeled like the black sheep of the family it becomes a script a narrative in the family and that can be really hard to adjust and that's not just dysfunctional families I think all families have a certain identity of each of their kids you know I don't know about UT but like I was the more studious one so my brother became the artsy one you know even though he was not bad at school but he was a better drawer than me and that's all my parents would focus on you know and so it even, I think, affected kind of like our careers, right? It was like I was like very pushed towards academics. My brother, they're like, oh, do a trade or do cooking or something like that. You know, I think in some ways he probably rebelled against my parents a little bit because of that and was like, no, I'm gonna, he invented going to finance. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it's just, I don't know, it's just interesting. But definitely paying attention to scripts and labels within a family can be. I think, I think I feel like for parents, it's really hard for them to do and to see that. Well, because a family, you know, you're with a family. You're, you're part of that unit. Mm-hmm. And so over time, grudges, resentments, they build up for not just the patient, but all the people in the family. They have different feelings, emotions about whatever's being done. And you're right. It can become a script so that they're just shortcuts to the anger. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it doesn't yeah. take much, you know, to get to the anger. And then you can't see. One of the things I feel like has been the most meaningful in some of the sessions that I have with people is just stopping and letting them talk and not letting the other person talk, but sort of make them listen. There's so much talking in families and not enough listening sometimes. And I think people get, you know, shunted to the wayside. They get put in a category as troublemaker or whatever, and nobody really stops to listen anymore and then that just makes the problem worse and so when they come you know to see us often these parents feel justified in their anger and the way that they've treated this child because look at what they put me through you know all these years but today is a new day 
you're here, you're wanting to get help, it's a new day. So it's time to sometimes put that record on the shelf and start a new record. What are we going to do moving forward? You know, that's that's uh, one of the things that I hope we do when we're talking to these people is just to give them hope. It doesn't yeah. have to always be, you know, those words always and never, you know, if we just retire them, mm-hmm. today is a new day. Yeah. So what are we going to learn today? Yep. What's going to be different today? Today. Right. Agreed. Stay focused in the present. Can't do anything about the past. Future's not here yet. All you have really is now. So how are you feeling now? And what can we do with that? Mm-hmm. I feel like that's something we can offer people. 100%. Pretty recently I had a case where it was actually an uncle. He was a very um, extra extravagant <laughs> uncle. And so he was very worried about some behavioral issues and these had. And he was in the room. I mean, the head was shaking. The finger was wagging. He was standing up. He was bouncing around the room. At some point, I'm like, is this like a Beyonce concert? I was like, he, I was, I was like expecting full-on full on song. I was like, this man is in the spotlight, you know? Wardrobe change. Yeah, wardrobe change. I was like, and which was... It was great, but then I stopped and I looked at the young child and I'm like, she's sitting here. This is probably kind of what she experiences on a day-to-day basis with her uncle. Like, she's not getting a lot of breathing room. So, you know, I sort of was like, I understand you're very passionate. I reframed and redirected towards the, the niece and gave her a chance to speak. They actually probably had a discussion for the first time. Then they were willing to take her home and work with her and get her into therapy. And it really kind of just de-escalated. So sometimes it is kind of... You know, just kind of seeing where everyone is at. Because, mm-hmm. you know, the theatrics can be entertaining even or fun. But really, is it, you know, is it providing what the other person's lacking from, from that relationship? And, and you know, you agree with this, T. No one's perfect, right? Like, right. I don't know about you, but I think about you know, my, my, even my parents. And I'm like, I probably had more well-adjusted parents than my parents. So it's like, <laughs> in some sense, like, you I, almost if you think about it like that... It, you almost can like, you know, personalize your parents and kind of understand the way that they act versus like seeing them as when you're younger, like an omnipotent being that knows no wrong, which usually by the time you hit 20, you realize like, okay, no. <laughs> I mean, I feel like that is the whole purpose of life is to continually change your perspective, mm-hmm. continually grow and learn and look back, reflect, oh, this is why these things happen. And, you know, since I'm further down the calendar okay. than you... <laughs> I have had a chance to really, you know, meditate on my parents' lives and what they went through and really not interrogate, but question them about their experiences, being able to, to, now that they're old enough that they can kind of talk about it without, because pride gets in there, doesn't it? Like this pride, you don't want to um, come across as, I mean, who wants to be a neglectful parent? So sometimes even just our approach and talking about these things with people will determine whether they get very defensive or whether they lean in and say okay yeah maybe I was part of the problem what can I do to help which comes back to like vulnerability I mean it does take vulnerability to be able to say like there maybe I did do something wrong and humility yeah it's not something that everyone does well or easily Mm -hmm. and you want to again you have to accept what is before you can go to what could be Mm -hmm. you have to at least acknowledge whatever you could have participated. Maybe you didn't participate in anything, you know, towards the trauma or we're talking about neglect, but, um, but maybe you did. And guess what? 
it's it's a new day. Yeah. We can change. We can do things, but you got to be aware of it first. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you're just sort of walking around with just this resentment and grief and, you know, how can you thrive if you're not really honest and open as to what you're doing with your life? No, 100%. Kind of unrelated, but uh, I remember a female had gone overseas or was going to go overseas on a college trip and didn't go. And the group that she was with passed away from a natural disaster. She had a lot of guilt about not going and surviving and why her friends passed away and she didn't. And that was kind of hard for me even, you know, because I really sympathized with what she was going through. But it's like, that's tough. She had a lot of remorse, which... I don't know about you, T, but I would be happy that I survived. I could almost like avoid a final destination. <laughs> That's what went through my mind. It's like thinking, looking around the corner saying, when it's going to be my turn, that it's coming for me. Yeah, I don't know how I would feel in those situations. I haven't, you know, haven't really been in a situation where I survived something, fortunately. But, I mean, I, I can kind of see how that person could get to the point like, well, why me? Why was I chosen? But then hopefully you pivot to, well, I was chosen. I am here. So what am I supposed to do with the rest of the days that I have? And I think that touches on, you know, resilience. We have to have some form of reframing of the trauma and kind of how to move forward. And you know, it's not something that's going to happen in the short term. It would take a lot, quite a bit of therapy, I think, to get through that. I think psychiatric illnesses in general, it's just this big spectrum. Mm -hmm. And there are some things that are more crystal clear, you know, when you go towards schizophrenia, bipolar, you know, clear cut diagnoses, but then there are things that are more subtle Mm -hmm. and nuanced. So again, you're seeing somebody one moment in time, they could be bipolar, they could be borderline, they could be PTSD because there's so much overlap. And I think it speaks to how much we still don't fully understand about the brain. I mean, those neuroscientists, my hat's off to you because they're out there with the, you know, little microscopic and the cells and they can know which neurotransmitter does this and that. But still, like the whole gestalt of how our brain functions and what has to happen to cause this particular um, illness or this particular insult, it, it is, it's still amazing to me that that we can do anything in psychiatry because everything is just so blended and... Um, but we do. We do do things in psychiatry. We do see people get better. We do. We know that therapy changes neurotransmitters too. Mm-hmm. And so medicine does that, but medicine and therapy together changes, you know, brain chemistry and people get better. Sometimes it's just that they're heard because they've been in a room maybe for so long just bouncing whatever off the walls and not being heard or, or acknowledged. And sometimes just sitting in a room with them and listening to them, that's what does it. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's more. So it's, you know, trying to titrate what people need to what we can offer. You know, when you mentioned treatments, that's why we really do focus a lot on like mindfulness. And I think that's yes. why it's become so prevalent in the, in society. I mean, even, you know, neurobiologically, right? Like, you know, there's, more activation of the amygdala, which is where kind of our fear-evoking receptors are um, and centers are. Really, you know, mindfulness, meditation, studies show it increases, I believe it's part of the brain called like the insula, which is basically how your body regulates like emotional responses. It's almost like a funnel. Meditation, mindfulness, or to strengthen that insula center in the brain, it really can help 
people feel more focused and calm and it takes a lot of effort and you know time but it really can have a positive impact and I think that's why it's so focused on you know especially in trauma mm-hmm. and kind of like a, a little side note about that my, my brother's uh, father-in-law has been meditating since he was in college and he's like the most zen <laughs> calm person no matter what's going on around him I've never seen that man like get even remotely anxious and he's and I'm asking him about his meditation experiences and he said he's reached a point where he's all he's seen like a blue light. He's meditated so deeply and I'm like, well I mean, I'm just like, what is what does that mean? Mm, interesting. <laughs> he should get with the psychedelic researchers right? and see if there's any overlap there. <laughs> Which I thought was just like, yeah, it's just interesting. But um yeah, I mean I think there is a lot to say about really even just from a neurobiological perspective with trauma of like you know, using therapy and mindfulness. And obviously we have the medication side of things, which I think on this podcast we're trying to (laughs) maybe not drop name brands and things like that, but kind of similar to most of our psychiatric illnesses, obviously SSRIs are effective and we use them pretty frequently. Um, You kind of even before this, I was researching, like like, they've really kind of honed in on like different like serotonin transporters in the brain. And if you have a shorter gene for this than this, then you're more likely to develop PTSD. I mean, it's... I'm telling you, my people are out there searching the details, the Mm -hmm. DNA. They're out there. And again, my hat's off to you because we need to, we need that information to help us pinpoint how to target these different symptoms. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of overlap, right, with comorbidity, like if someone has depression, let's say a personality disorder, other things. Well, I think sometimes, too, there's just dysphoria Mm. associated with PTSD that can look like a major depression. So, again, it's back to those criteria. Are they meeting? And sometimes people have both, right? They meet criteria for both PTSD and so it behooves us to know what those criteria are, not just sort of see somebody, oh, they've had a trauma. Okay, they automatically have PTSD. They may not. They may have a AT or ASD, acute stress disorder, mm-hmm. which is more dissociative heavy. They may have something else. So we have to be careful too as providers to not put people in categories and lump them into one thing. To be open to whatever again, we're listening, we're they're giving us offerings, right? They're giving us things to tell us what they're experiencing, and it's up to us to kind of try to put those in those categories and see what fits. I think, you know, really as providers, we do uh, have, most of us do have some awareness of that. Maybe the public doesn't. They probably see things as very black and white with diagnoses. But if you work in mental health, you know, there's, there is quite a bit of overlap between them because really the DSM provides characteristics of each diagnosis, but really there is a lot of gray area. Diagnoses can change, can fluctuate. Um, I think sometimes patients can be a little bit... um, They want more of a clear picture of what's going on, and it can take time. But if you work with someone consistently enough, usually they can pinpoint the diagnosis. It's kind of when, you know, I hate to say it, but if you do a lot of doctor shopping or hopping around, you'll get a lot of different opinions. I mean, I've opened up a chart, and there's just like a panel of diagnoses that they've had. Nobody ever clears it up. It's (laughs) always still in there, you know. Um, So, yeah, you have to review that with people. You know, and thank goodness we have a DSM to kind of help Mm -hmm. us put these things in categories, but I still feel like that overlap. And also, fortunately, a lot of the things that overlap, the medicines treat all of those things. Yes. You know, if somebody has anxiety and depression, fortunately, we can give them one medicine to, to treat those two things. I haven't actually seen a lot of research 
or medicines that have been effective. It feels like in my training, and again, this was in the dinosaur era, but that there were no established medical treatments like specifically for PTSD. A lot of those studies did not, they failed. Um, but we use those a lot of times SSRIs because they treat those associated symptoms with PTSD, like the dysphoria and anxiety or irritability. I mean, I can talk about my own traumatic experience where, you know, I was a victim of a sexual assault and I recall just everything freezing in time, like not feeling very numb to the things that were happening. And even to this day, I feel like sometimes I ignore things that are clear to everybody else. And it could be little things like my car keys or, you know, but I wonder if that is still that kind of thawing that is keeping me from being able to recognize or be sensitized to certain events around me. Hmm. Do you feel like it's like certain events you feel like a little bit less present? Is that what you mean? Like, I mean, I can go through a room in my house and miss like a whole section of things that I should be working on or doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then somebody will ask me about it and I'll be like, it's not even in there. What are you talking about? Mm-hmm. And then it's right there. Like I just miss um, certain things. I don't know. Maybe that's more dementia. <laughs> I'm going to say that might, that might be that age. <laughs> that might be another. That might be that ADHD. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, <laughs> no, I but mean. there is sort of like this freezing that mm-hmm. happens and you kind of stop paying attention to certain things. I wonder if that happens with other. Yeah. yeah. I mean, do you feel like. I mean, I don't have any of the other nightmares or anything. After the event, did you. I mean, really, I think avoidance is something that people easily do and may not even realize. Do you feel like, did you avoid certain things after that? I'm not sure how much detail we want to get into, (laughs) but yes, I actually avoided the whole gender. Oh! (laughs) Into another. (laughs) I mean, there we go. I mean, we're talking (laughs) real life. Yeah, Yeah. of course. I mean, that's. That definitely happened. I mean, I hop back. <laughs> eventually. You came back to the dark side eventually. Yeah, but those were some good years. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. Sounds like we had a busy week. We did. <laughs> I'm glad we made it through. No survivor's guilt here. I'm glad we got to wrap it out and talk about it, too. That's right. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for listening. See you next time. Or listen to you next time. Bye.